Welcome to the Free Money Podcast, where we bring you the the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus on institutional investing you desperately crave. I think I stopped doing that lead-in for a while. You did. You took a pause. Yeah. And then I had, I, at one point, I had like written a little like funny craving something, and then it came off being really weird because you actually didn't say it. So. <laughs> All right. Well, that you know, set we gotta, me up for success here. Sloan. We get. We get. You know. We got to stay. Uh, stay relatable for the listeners. We do. Yeah, and you're living in a hellscape right now, which is pretty relatable for 2020. Yeah, no joke. So for the yeah, the Bay Area, sadly, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to laugh when I say this, but it's on fire. We've got fire forest fires going big time. And uh, I'll tell you, Sunday night, I think it was Sunday night, I woke up at 3 a.m. to like the craziest lightning and windstorm. I thought for a second we were having a tornado oh, over yeah. my house. Like the windows like, were like buckling in geez. and uh, and no rain. And so you, oh, you get like ridiculous wind and lightning strikes in California with no rain. And you get what we have right now, which is, you know, out of control fires. It's about the fighters about 12, 13 miles from where I'm sitting. So if the wind changes, we may need to. Wow. Short Sloan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of, I mean, I, I was, I was really strictly, I was reading the AP piece on it and they described like what happened is an unprecedented siege of lightning. Wow. That <laughs> is what it felt like to be yeah. in it. Yeah. It felt siege like, um, yeah. yeah, it, it's pretty annoying in part because, you know, obviously we have all the smoke and, but like we're, First off, like we don't know what the hell to do. It's like you can't go outside. You're supposed to stay inside because of the virus. You can't go outside and get any fresh air because there is none. It's just like I don't yeah. know. Like I'm ready for 2020 to just be behind us, Swamp. Yeah, it's just time yeah. to be 2021. It's serious. <laughs> I mean, but you, the thing is, I said that about 2019. <laughs> you know but Uh-oh. at least at least we know like what we would be doing like if we were on the titanic you know and everyone's like some people are like screaming for their life we would just be podcasting as the titanic yeah. went down you know yeah, we would be calling people and asking them like what do they think about the chairs floating by <laughs> exactly is that going to uh. be a problem for pensions <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. so what's the news aside from our earth uh, fighting back. Well, our friends at Calper, I mean, we have one less friend at Calpers. Oh. That's, that's kind of the big item. That is just like, item. I mean, if I were more theatrical, I would do the like Chris Crocker, leave pensions alone, <laughs> leave Calpers no alone. <laughs> but yeah, I it's can't take like, tears very well. Yeah, me neither. Uh, but I have to say like, that is the vibe I get. I mean, yeah, I, maybe you tell the story and I'll tell my interpretation. I'm not sure everybody knows what happened um happened this past oh yeah okay so so i guess i'll I'll set a stake back like you know maybe 10 years right just to give a sense of like what i mean institutional investor called being the chief investment officer of calpers the worst job in investment management um you know which thankless does that sound right to you (laughs) it's thankless it's um you know there's not a lot of upside to taking the job except feeling good that you've tried to like save california from a fiscal catastrophe um yep it's it's a lot of downsides and so it, i would say it's a thankless job and the people who take Absolutely. it generally are very service-minded and and mm. like really focused on giving back which, which yep. makes like what happened in the past couple of weeks that much more frustrating but anyway finish yeah yeah so so uh ben mang is a you know a u.s citizen who uh you know i think w- was born in china worked for the you know the chinese um state administration of assets uh, which is you know a massive asset owner organization um he had worked at calpers before then he came back to take the cio job um and he was implementing a number of reforms right like they called it sort of more and better assets uh was one of the terms that he that he used so um, they took a bunch of money out of active managers. Uh, they shut down the uh, emerging manager program. Um, I mean, we, we, we reached out to Fiona Ma, who's uh, the treasurer of California, is on the board. Um, and she was basically like, look, this is really sad. Um, ben delivered a return of, you know, 470 basis points. The benchmark's 430. You know, that's something. 
Um, and, you know, Ben put us on a, on the path towards a 7% annual return, you know? Um, and it seems like what precipitated his, you know, um, defenestration, shall we say, from CalPERS was um, the, like, just, uh, you know, so many little cuts, right? Where, you know, you had a U.S. congressman hurling, like, this straight-up racist stuff at him. Um, he was accused of being a spy. Um, you know, and then the, the last thing that happened was apparently he was disciplined for owning stock in a private equity manager. I think he owned stock in Blackstone at the same time he invested in one of their, uh, funds, which I can't imagine that he would, I mean, if, if that was a way to private personally off of CalPERS, he, he's, he sucks at that. (laughs) (laughs) He was like going out to like use his job to enrich himself. Trust me, yeah. there's a few different ways. <laughs> let me let me give you like my like 90 seconds on this thing because it's, it's really been bugging me. And I, I've always viewed myself as like this champion of the investment teams because it's so hard to get really great people working at public pension plants. They are, yeah. as I've already said, pretty thankless. Ben, I know Ben. He's a fairly shy and kind guy. Like he didn't take the job because he wanted to go on CNBC every 20 minutes and, you know, establish like a national profile. Um, yeah. He did it because he probably really loved the idea of fixing the biggest behemoth pension fund in the business and, and helping the state. Um, I don't think any of us expected him to be able to do that quietly you know, like, which his personality is, but I also don't think any of us expected the level of personal attack. He's so you mentioned one supposedly serious people in our government accusing him of being a spy. This is like an American citizen, you know, working for a public pension plan. Like that's not okay. I mean, show the evidence if you have it, but it's not okay to just like go out and make accusations like this in order to win political points. So he took a lot of pain. I think that was yeah, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that was probably pretty hard to go through as a as oh, a for quiet, sure. shy for, like dude. what a pain in, what a pain in the ass. Like yeah. this is totally unfair. And then the one thing that then what happened next was he was dragged over the coals for removing this expensive hedge, you know, mm. this downside hedge on the portfolio just before portfolios cratered. And in my perspective, like he did the right thing. First of all, markets are back up. Right. So it wasn't like he was that crazy to say, look, it looks like there's more room in the markets. We should probably take this off. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I don't like it when pension funds try to get cute when they're supposed to be taking a long term view. Like, yeah, putting these types of, you know, derivatives on a pension plan portfolio when you're like looking out 75 years is a really expensive way to be a long term investor. If you need cash and downturns, invest in cash yielding assets. So yeah. that was the second thing he had to deal with. The third now now you're getting into this ethics question where people were like starting to question whether or not he knew he had the conflict. And frankly, I think it's somewhat ludicrous because the only reason we knew the conflict existed is because he reported the conflict where you're supposed to report conflicts. Um, <laughs> and so that was published, the conflict. Yeah. And it turned out he had owned that Blackstone investment before he came to CalPERS. And CalPERS had a relationship with Blackstone for many years before he arrived. And so what? Right? Fine. I yeah. don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't recuse himself and we need to figure that out. But I'm guessing that he wasn't defenestrated. I think he just left. I don't think yeah. he was asked to go. You know, CalPERS is a place where like they don't even have coffee machines in there. It's so hey. frustrating. You go in and yeah. you're like, have a cup of coffee? And they're like, nope. Because that Starbucks is be, around the corner, Bucko. Yeah, <laughs> yeah seriously. Because they're like, because that could be perceived as you know, currying favor with you. <laughs> and it's like, Jesus, I just want a cup of coffee. Yeah. And and look, I have no evidence about what I'm going to say, which is why we should say it slow in the era of <laughs> saying whatever the hell you want to say. But like, hell yeah. I wonder. Here's my conspiracy theory for you, um, and then hmm. you can go to our uh, our energy drink and see if you can get some revenue. <laughs> Um, no. <laughs> a lot of inside jokes here. I'm um, yeah. sorry. So my conspiracy theory is Ben was fed up. He was in the public mm. light. People were attacking his ethics. But maybe he got wind that the U.S. Department of State was sending a letter out to every single U.S. university to tell them 
to divest from Chinese stocks, which happened this week, by the way. Yep. It's like a huge yep. intervention deal. by the U.S. state into fiduciary-bound investors' lives. And he's thinking to himself, as probably the most prominent Chinese investor in America, that maybe this is the moment to exit and yep. avoid having to be the kind of person to defend all this. Um, yep. Because the U.S. State Department just raised the stakes on like Chinese investments and fiduciary-bound investors to a level that he probably wouldn't have been allowed to ignore. Yep. And so, you know, that's my conspiracy that like, all this politicization of mm. this process led him to think, maybe I'm out of here. But I don't have any evidence for that, Sloan. Well, I mean, but like, you know, we're, you know, there's QAnon has been on the rise. We, you know, we're starting FAnon. That's our, you know, conspiracy theory, nutcase club. Oh, uh, we are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, wait. I, I've just decided it's Ephanon. Uh, it's happening. Oh. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's at the core of the Ephanon orthodoxy. That, that's uh, like my NBA. The National Bazooka Association. Ooh, yeah. Instead of a National Rifle Association, I've always had the idea <laughs> of a National Bazooka Association where we go and pursue rights for bazooka holders in an aggressive way just to show. <laughs> anyway. I mean, that's, I mean, but like, here. government jobs sound like they kind of suck. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, <laughs> here's the thing How the hell do you bring innovation into government? Right? Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. We need innovation at places like CalPERS. You think to yourself, no, 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 CalPERS should outsource innovation to the private sector. No. Then you mm. never get long-term innovations relevant to long-term investors. We yep. need them to innovate. We need them to think about what are the metrics that matter in 20 years and build the processes for thinking about climate change and all these things. And so like a huge part of my life is actually trying to think about how we catalyze innovation. And I think yeah. I've said this to you offline, Sloan, but I have this whole concept of like the three C's, which is about crises, consolidation, and collaboration as means of driving innovation into public pension plans. Crises, you know, in the current moment, there's new systems for, being, for liquidity that are being put in place. There's, you know, new portfolio resiliency tools that are being assessed. Um, consolidation as the second C, you know, if you have a threat as a pension fund that you will be consolidated into other plans, you will improve the way you operate. And if we consolidate these plans into kind of a bigger community of plans, then we have more resources for changing how we deploy capital. And then the last C is collaboration. It's all about you know pooling um, resources, ideas, legitimacy, and helping people you know work together to avoid getting fired. Because in my experience, the only way you get fired from a public pension plan is if you innovate. Ugh, that's so depressing. I mean, I like, I, I feel like, I, okay, I, I, we're not letting that be the last word about innovation in governments, though. Because no, that, let's not do it. <laughs> um, I think, I think let's call it, let's phone a friend on this one. Oh, <laughs> it's a phone a friend. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, we should call. We should call the guy who led technology and innovation at the... Uh, U.S. White House under Obama. How would that? Oh work? man, that's just gonna it. that's gonna remind me of the Obama years, and it's just gonna be so good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's gonna feel delicious. Be yeah. like watching the West Wing. So we're talking to Tom <laughs> Khalil, uh, and he's now at Schmidt Futures, right? That's yep, that's right. Hey Tom, you got Ashby and Sloan. Hi Tom. Hi. How are you? Are you are you in a a, a smoky environment right now, or are you somewhere out? Yeah, me too. Yep. Well, Tom, thanks for coming on. First of all, hopefully you're staying safe from the viruses and the fires and the fire NATO that happened this week. <laughs> uh, that's a real thing, by the way. Uh, fire NATO, great. Fire NATO happened this week. Uh, Tom is the chief innovate. <laughs> that's true. It is Shark Week. Tom is the is the chief innovation officer at Schmidt Futures. But Tom, we got you here because we've been having a chat about how hard it is to bring innovation into government. And now, obviously, in my case, it's innovation and public pension plans. But we've already told people that, you know, you were the deputy director for policy at the White House. And really what you led was innovation. And so I think the first question I want to ask you, and then we've got a whole series of questions we want to run through with you, is, is you know, as the person leading innovation at the executive branch of the government, some people might wonder, wait, 
the governments are doing innovation. How much innovation do governments really do? Maybe you could just give us a sense for like the level of innovation that went on from your perch at the White House and the types of things that you were doing. Sure. Well, uh, one thing that you might do is uh, take out your iPhone uh, and ask yourself, where okay. did the technologies for the iPhone come from? Uh, so the Internet came from the government, GPS, uh, the first graphical web browser, uh, the advanced transistors, uh, Siri, um, active matrix liquid crystal displays, uh, the voice recognition technology. So a lot of the uh, building blocks that have enabled the wave of uh, innovation that we see in information and communications technologies came from government-supported uh, university research. So the government does have... I thought it was libertarian, libertarian free market. Well, you still obviously <laughs> have companies have to create uh, and develop and market commercial products and services. So they invest um, more than the government uh, to actually turn this into a product or, or service that can be sold. But if you say, where did many of the scientific and technological building blocks come from? Uh, a lot of it is the result of government-supported research. So as you know, the internet uh, started mm. in uh, the late 1960s with a program called the ARPANET, uh, back when that network was connecting uh, computers in, in uh, four universities. So That's it so didn't cool. become a commercial phenomena uh, until the mid-90s. And the same thing with GPS. So that's something that the military developed. Uh, DARPA invested in low-cost, small uh, receivers for the GPS signal. Uh, and then in the, the 90s, uh, when I was working for President Clinton, we made the more accurate version of the signal available, which is what enabled uh, commercial location-based services. Yeah, so... So when I make so that basically means that I can make location based memes, um, which is amazing. I mean, like we t one of our kind of old canards on this show is that kind of you know free market in scare quotes is kind of a pleasant fiction, right? Because there's so much happening behind the scenes, you know, to let me make memes about you know various places or you know just foment innovation in general. Um, I wonder, like, from a from a you know standpoint of philosophy, like, what form do you think that the government should uh, should should work to do that? And yeah, so I think there's at least three important roles. One is that the government has the capacity to make long-term investments in the building blocks of economic growth and job creation and productivity, and those are things like uh, basic research. Uh, infrastructure and human capital. So that's one thing is that things like research, human capital, and infrastructure that create the foundation for economic growth and job creation and productivity. The second is to create the right environment for uh, private sector investment. And many things that we take for granted, like rule of law, the ability to enforce contracts, those things are, are really important. Uh, but so is competition policy. Um, so is uh, a tax code that encourages companies to invest in research and development. So that's the second thing, is creating the right environment for uh, private sector uh, innovation, both in terms of new business formation, but also investment in, in research and development. And the third is what I call innovation for what. What are the problems that we're trying to solve and how do we use innovation to address those problems, whether it's accelerating the transition to a low-carbon economy or allowing Americans to lead longer, healthier lives or ensuring that the United States continues to have the strongest uh, military in the world. So it's, it's channeling uh, innovation in directions that are responsive to national priorities. I, that's, I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I, I think language that I've seen you use to describe this is sort of like 
a coherent relationship between kind of means and ends, right? Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like in particular, when you talk about something that sounds kind of broad, like let's fund more basic research. Um, you know, one could imagine, uh, you know, let's say the election goes a certain way and, and the conversation around innovation takes on a different color, um, that you might get somebody in the White House who would say, yeah, sure, do it. How would you actually go about doing that? Well, let me give you an example. So in the late 90s, when I was working for uh, President Clinton, there was an emerging community of researchers who said, uh, we uh, are very excited about the opportunities associated with nanoscale science and engineering. Um, and a nanometer is a billionth of a meter. So when you make things really small, uh, not only are they small, they start to have novel and potentially useful properties. Um, so uh, President Clinton went to Caltech and he gave a speech in which he proposed increasing the funding for nanoscale science and engineering. And he said, you know, imagine what might be possible. We might be able to store the Library of Congress in a device the size of a sugar cube, or detect cancerous tumors before they're visible to the human eye, or make materials that are stronger than steel in a fraction of the weight. So the way we thought about achieving some of those goals was, number one, to invest in fundamental research in agencies like the National Science Foundation, uh, number two, to invest in centers of excellence, number three, to invest in user facilities, um, so places like Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, uh, not very far from where I'm, I'm calling you today, where the Department of Energy invested in something called the Molecular Foundry, which has under one roof all the tools that you need to be able to do imaging and synthesis and fabrication at the nanoscale. And then finally, investing in the workplace that we need to create interdisciplinary scientists who are capable of working at the intersection of fields like biology, physical sciences, and engineering, which is where a lot of the potential for nanotechnology is going to come from. So that's an example. You've got this goal of we want the United States to lead in this emerging field. We want to use it to promote advances in uh, everything from better battery technology to smart anti-cancer therapeutics that can uh, uh, destroy tumor cells while leaving healthy cells untouched. And then you've got to figure out what are the types of support for research that you want to provide in particularly in our universities and, and our national labs. That, yeah, that, I mean, that's awesome. I think that, you know, based on the, you know, the three or four SD cards sitting in my desk drawer um, unused and forgotten that probably could hold like together. I don't know, like as much as all of the computing power in my family or, or as all the hard drive space in my family, um, you know, five or six years ago, um, I think you've done pretty well on that nanoscale thing. But like that sounds a lot like if you think about the archetypal form of innovation where you're sort of making investments to meet national priorities, right? Um, you know, and that's kind of, I guess that's, you know, probably item one in the definition for innovation in the dictionary. Item two might be, you know, I, th I think you defined in the White House strategy sort of institutional and public sector innovation. Um, I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit more about, you know, what's been going on there, what the opportunities are. Yeah. Well, um, when I worked for uh, President Clinton, um, I was able to get uh, DARPA the authority uh, to use something called an incentive prize. And then when I came uh, back in the government uh, during the Obama administration, I was able to work with the Senate uh, to get every agency the authority to use incentive prizes. So typically, the way the government uh, funds innovation is through grants and contracts. So if I'm the National Science Foundation and you're a university researcher, you would send me a proposal. There would be uh, a panel of, of uh, researchers who would evaluate that, and they would say, you know, these are the very best proposals that the National Science Foundation should fund. So that's using a peer review mechanism. Um, and that's a very important way to support innovation. But another approach uh, that I'm very excited about is where the sponsor of an incentive prize identifies a goal 
uh, and then says, we're going to provide uh, an incentive to whichever team is able to accomplish this goal first. So when DARPA did this, they said, uh, we're going to give a prize to whichever team can build a self-driving car that can navigate this course through the mountains. Um, and we're going to give the, the prize to whoever does it uh, first. And then if, if uh, you know, multiple teams are successful in doing that, then we'll, then we'll give it to whichever team did it the fastest. So the first time they ran that, uh, uh, the DARPA competition, no one won. The second time they won, uh, a, a team led by Sebastian Thrun at Stanford won. Larry Page was at the finish line. Uh, and he promptly acquired the winning team. So that's where the Google self-driving oh car effort, uh, which is currently uh, called Waymo, uh, came from. So this allows uh, the government or the sponsor of an incentive prize to set a goal and yet to be indifferent about which team or approach is going to win. Um, so it has a number of advantages relative to grants and contracts. So that's an example of an institutional innovation. I could give you a bunch of other examples, but that's that that's a specific example. That's awesome, Tom. I think one of the questions that I, I I've been grappling with and wanted to talk to you a little bit about is like the mix of innovation dollars and and the types of innovations that get done. And and I'll just give you a tiny bit of context and then ask, but the work that I often do is trying to help these like big public pension plans innovate. And people often say, why are you trying to make these big plans innovate? Shouldn't they be outsourcing the innovation to the private sector? Like, isn't it a hedge fund's job to be innovative or, a, or a, you know, some other? And, and my response is often like, well, look, if you want 20, 30, 40 year innovations, innovations where we're helping investors understand the consequences of climate change, you have to drive that innovation through these long horizon investors because the hedge funds don't care. They're going to be out of the securities by the time climate change hits. Well, in that context of like, we need long-term actors to drive long-term kind of transformational innovations. Sloan and I saw the Congressional Research Service is noting that only 22% of all the R&D expenditures in 2018 are from government, which is the smallest proportion on record which means we're shifting a lot of those innovations that are kind of what I would expect are longer-term innovations towards actors in the private sector, which might be more short-term and thus maybe less ambitious. I'm curious to what, what you think the consequences or effects of this shift from um, government-led innovation to private-led innovation means for the innovations themselves. No, I think it's a it's good news that the private sector is increasing its investment in research and development. That's unambiguously good news. What is not good news is that we're allowing, as a percentage of GDP, federal investment in research and development to decline. Um, and the reason is, is that the government is more likely to fund uh, research that has spillovers. Mm. So, you know, if, if you think about... Uh, the types of projects that the government has supported in the past, um, in particularly when it's supporting, for example, university researchers, um, their incentive is to publish. Their incentive is to make sure everyone knows about the, yeah. uh, their results uh, because that's how they get promoted. Um, and therefore, uh, that's more likely to have spillovers uh, than, uh, you know, internal a corporate R&D that they're not uh, sharing with their peers. So there are still, you know, spillovers from private sector research. Um, you know, economists estimate that the private sector only really captures a small percentage of the uh, societal benefits of the mm. innovations uh, that they produce, uh, and that a lot is uh, results in consumer surplus. Um, but it's very important to keep the government as an investor in uh, in research and development. Um, you know, one of the reasons for this is that the government support for university research uh, often results in serendipitous innovations that would have been impossible to predict. So the reason that we have 
uh, green fluorescent protein, uh, which is a breakthrough in terms of uh, uh, biomedical imaging, is that some researcher was interested in why certain jellyfish glow in the dark. Now, can you imagine, uh, you know, you're a CEO and one of your employees comes to you and says, I'd like to, you know, understand why uh, jellyfish glow in the dark. Uh, that's probably not going to be a project uh, that, that you're going to be super excited about funding. Um, so because of the serendipitous nature of research that we can't predict uh, where these breakthroughs are going to come from, same with CRISPR, which is the you know technology du jour uh, in terms of uh, being able to edit the genome. Um, that grew out of uh, research that was trying to understand the immune system of bacteria. Uh, and again, that's not the type of thing that the private sector would have invested in. I just imagine what it must have been like to, you know, like what your email email inbox must look like uh, over the years is like, you, you know, you're going from green protein at like, you know, to nanoscale off to, off to all these other things. And, you know, I, I can't help but wonder, I mean, I, I think in one of the documents that, that you shot over, um, uh, sort of spoke to like building for more than just this administration. Um, and it, it kind of sucks that I'm, I have an inherently cynical <laughs> expectation of your answer, but, uh, to, to what degree do you think that your work in, you know, the, the Clinton, the Obama administration has sort of survived? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to give you the historian's answer, which is that you have a mixture of change and continuity. So I'll, I'll give you some examples of both. So this initiative that I worked on uh, for uh, President Clinton, which he unveiled in a speech that he gave in Caltech in early 2000, is still going on. And mm. it's resulted in $27 billion in funding for nanoscale science and engineering. So it survived the transition wow. uh, multiple uh, administrations. The uh, ability to use incentive prizes, uh, you go to challenge.gov, you'll see over 1,000 instances where agencies have used this authority. Um, I worked on the uh, BRAIN initiative, which President Obama announced in April of 2013. And Congress did something that they almost never do, uh, which is to provide 10 years of funding uh, for this for the NIH component of the BRAIN initiative. Generally, as you know, they just provide funding one year at a time. Um, so there are some things that I've worked on that have survived. Probably the most important thing that I did during the Obama administration is uh, recruit at any one time 20 people to come to the White House. And they worked on everything from going to Mars to making computer science a new basic to reducing the waiting list for an organ transplant to preparing and recruiting 100,000 high-quality math and science teachers to investing in advanced manufacturing. And the people who um, had the opportunity to work at the White House learned a lot about how you get things done, how you exert influence uh, without authority, and how you build high-impact uh, multi-sector collaborations that involve government, industry, academia, foundations, and civil society organizations. I mean, that, that you've definitely taken a, what was at the beginning of this episode a pretty dour perspective on public sector innovation and, and given us some instances to be happy about. Well, I believe that it is better to write a, light a single candle than cry out of the darkness. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, you know, philosophically, I'm a meliorist, uh, which is sort of different from an optimist or a pessimist. And a meliorist believes that things can get better, but only if we work at them. So it is not uh, determined uh, whether things are going to get uh, better or worse. You know, on the one hand, you can look at what's happened to under five child mortality uh, over the uh, last uh, several hundred years, and you can conclude three things. One is things are still really terrible. You know, five million kids under the age of five die every year, number one. Number two, things have gotten much better. Uh, that is, they've improved by an order of magnitude relative to 1800. So if we had the same uh, level or rate of under five child mortality, 
that number wouldn't be 5 million, it would be 50 million. And third, things can be much better still. That is, if the world were at the level uh, that uh, Sweden has achieved, that number wouldn't be 5 million, it would be 500,000. So I believe that you have to simultaneously uh, think that things suck, they've gotten a lot better, and they could be much better still. <laughs> and Yeah, and have the capacity to hold those all in your mind without going insane. Yes. Totally. I think you've brought me over to meliorism. Same. I'm all for it. Yeah. All right. Well, Tom, thank you so much for for hopping on the the call with us. I mean, I I'm I want to learn more from the experiences where you driving collaboration and and bringing innovation into the White House. We need it in the world of public pension funds, but that's for another project on a on another day. So, thank you so much for taking 15 minutes out of your Friday to chat with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Long Stay distance safe. high five. All right. Thanks. I feel like the world sucks marginally less than I did before we got on the, on the phone. Totally. You know, the, the fact that he was able, I mean, that, that's the power of the White House as compared to the power of the public pensions. So brilliant, right. amazing people will take low pay to go and work 18 hours a day for the president. Um, when brilliant, amazing people go and take a pay cut to work at CalPERS, they get crapped on. Yeah. Yeah, sorry to sorry to bring you down there, slow. <laughs> I brought you. Right well, no, you, you know what I was thinking about as I heard him talking was like you know kind of the the you know the in um, the unofficial power of that office, right? That he got to yeah. work in the presidency, right? Where you know you can imagine maybe in a different context, like the president would be like, "Hey, that sucks." When mm -hmm. a member of Congress shoots racist stuff <laughs> at like a very influential public servant. Yeah. You know, um, and like it, it's definitely, you know, if you're of, the, of a, a type of person and I think that there's so many of us who are subject to uh, bigoted, racist, whatever is um, kind of invective, um, it can be really powerful to have like a tone at the top that that seems like it's going to definitely, yeah. you know, um, have your back. And I think, you know, maybe maybe that played some some role. I mean, the power of the office is is incredible. That's originally I met Tom through a project that the White House was doing to try to unlock uh, investment for solutions to climate change, and and I worked closely with with a few people on his team, and we ended up launching this aligned intermediary actually at the White House in 2015. But the idea was like, let's use the White House and that and the pa convening power of the mm, president. Yep. In order to bring philanthropists, pension funds, entrepreneurs, everybody together. And um, ultimately, we managed to use that as a way to raise about two million bucks in philanthropic capital, get a whole bunch of commitments from pension funds to invest in solutions to climate change. And funnily, the government never spent a dollar, all they did was convene. <laughs> You know, and yeah. thank God they, they didn't spend a dollar because it would have gone away in 2016. Um, yeah. <laughs> true, true. But so I've seen it firsthand, the power of like sending somebody an email and saying, hey, do you want to come to the White House and and talk about how we invest in solutions to climate change? Like nobody says no to that. Yeah. Uh, and so like using that for the for, for good is I think that's partly what Tom was the, the artist at. You know, he managed to do it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things in the, the documents he sent over, um, you know, in like the footnotes, it says that he threw really great parties, uh, <laughs> which I, I think that, you know, that aligns with the free money ethos about as closely as I think anything can. Yeah, that's ultimately uh, what we want to be known for, whatever else. Uh, they, they threw good parties. Yeah, ex exactly. But, you know, I mean, with that, it's time for the ultimate party. Uh, oh, yeah. segment of the show. <laughs> this is a segment where we answer listener questions, uh, and that includes questions from you, beloved listener. Um, so if you would like to ask a question on an upcoming episode, just go ahead and send an email to freemoneypod at gmail.com, freemoneypod at gmail.com. And while you're at it, why not give us a review? That would yeah. be cool. Uh, yeah. we, we had a review listening. that a review accused us of being relatable. Did you see that? I did. And yeah. <laughs> I, um, we have to get up a little higher in our ivory tower because yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> I mean, like that's. I, I appreciate being relatable. 
I think we, we strive. I don't moisturize five times a day and have this flawless skin so that I'll be relatable <laughs> after. <laughs> um, uh, what's the question? Anyways, the first, okay, so the first question for this week is, given the rise in SPAC issuance, that is special uh-huh. purpose acquisition company, um, I, I, you know, individual companies floated on an exchange designed to buy other companies and take them public. Should we expect to see the Free Money Podcast float a blank check IPO of its own anytime soon? Oh, shouldn't we though? Shouldn't we try? Right. I'm, I've always been fascinated by SPACs, um, in, in part uh, because SPACs, they, they, there's like all reasons to be crabby about SPACs, right? Like a, a, a good friend of mine, Martin Alvarez, wrote a, a Medium post that like was like, SPACs are the fast food of IPOs. And there's always I saw that. Re- it's a really good article. Everybody should read it. Uh, I've always been interested in SPACs because they're kind of like a, a fascinating alignment of interests for investors. If the SPAC doesn't find an acquisition, they don't, you know, it's a very strange concept, listeners, if you've never seen it, that you raise money into a company that has no company, right? Yeah. And then that company goes and acquires a, another company. And then lo and behold, the company that was private is now public. And, and so people invest in the SPAC, but it has very interesting terms. Um, for example, if they don't find a company to merge with, the investors get their money back with interest. Which I didn't realize mean, that. Yeah. Which means that the asset manager here is actually paying the investor for the right to manage their money. Kind of like when we give a bank you know, our money, they pay us an interest. Well, in the asset management industry, industry it's the opposite. We pay yeah. asset managers to take our money, and then they take more of their money if they make a profit. Um, and, and so I've always found SPACs a fascinating experiment in alignment of interests because you get paid for giving them money. That's the first thing. So I, I, I always enjoy watching them. The other thing that's fascinating, though, is how much SPACs end up being a leading indicator of crises. And yeah. you know, the, the last time we had this many SPACs um, was in the year 2007. And then for some reason, it dropped off like a cliff in 08, 09. And I'm trying to remember what happened around then. But I'm guessing if we're already at, what are we? I don't know. It's like 67 SPACs already this year. 66, maybe. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, if, if we're going to follow the, like, the way things went for the global financial crisis, then we've run out of time slot for our free money slack SPAC. Uh, I don't think we're going to get our... Our, our chance to do it. I think by the time we get around to actually filing it and taking it public, we're going to be mm. in, in well, a painful if, period. If you're out there uh, and you're an investment banker who wants to, to file our SPAC, uh, you know, slide into the free money to, uh, pod at gmail.com inbox. <laughs> There's like some Goldman Sachs junior <laughs> intern listening to this. He's like, I got a live deal. <laughs> you know what? Let's just take free money public through a SPAC. I mean, I think yeah. we have revenue now. That's a great point. We do have revenue. We've got like 125 bucks of revenue through the free money atelier, uh, yeah. which will be linked in this episode description. <laughs> yeah. So our our key ratios are no longer infinite. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, our NA, if you put them into Excel. <laughs> so we have actual ratios now, which is a, yeah, exactly. key, a key step. That's going to be public. that's going to be in the in the investor uh, deck. You know, we got ratios and everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next question right. is: Is it true that a pension funding debate plays a significant background role in the ongoing U.S. post office debacle? Oh, it is true. That is a true one, and mm. it, th- this goes to the Ephanon. Ephanon is real. Ephanon. 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 <laughs> Deep, deep inside the government, calling out the baloney. <laughs> no, in this case, Ephanon is legit. Um, there, there's kind of two key things that happened. So, I think it was 2006. We got this new, um, this new piece of legislation. I'm going to try to remember it: Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, something like that. And, and basically, what it said was, we need to pre-fund health benefits and pension funds. And we're going to, you know, like state agencies um, and other government entities, you need to pre-fund these benefits you're promising 
first because it makes them less costly because you get the power of compounding over time um, rather than doing a pay-as-you-go approach, which is very common in Europe. Um, and, and, and second, it just makes the promises more secure and allows uh, governments to kind of make these promises and, and ensure they get respected. So the, the rules did change, but the people who are like, oh, come on, this is insane. The Postal Service can't be held, you know, to a, uh, a different, you know, standard and they're complaining about something all these other governments are doing. Like they're stopping right there because where there's truth to it is because the, um, the discount rate that the Postal Service is using in order to calculate their liabilities is, I think at last check, about three and a half percent. So, whoa. Yeah. So when you think <laughs> like the way we calculate liabilities is um, in the public pension space, it's probably around somewhere between six and a half to eight and a half percent is the discount rate. Um, and, and just so that people know, the higher the discount rate, the lower the liability appears, the lower the present day contribution you need to make. And so yeah, you're basically assuming how much your money will grow at over the course of the investment, right? So exactly. you're if you, if you assume 3%, you have to put, put away way more money, like totally, I don't, I don't want, you know? Yeah. So, so like if you put, um, $1 away at three and a half percent in 60 years, that would be $8. The rule of 72. I'm like running this in my yeah, head. Look at this quickly. guy. Um, but if you do 7%, I'm going to do it. Uh, in 60 years, it's something like $64, okay? Yeah. So same dollar today going in at a 3.5% versus a 7%, which are both legit expected return counts used in U.S. government agencies today, one in the Postal Service, one is, you know, CalPERS. Um, and in 60 years, one is worth $8 and one is worth 64 And so there mm. is a lot of flexibility here to play with these things but the postal service has a very low discount rate now mm. all that being said i think the postal service has been defaulting on its required payments <laughs> since 2012 <laughs> so so they did, they were doing 5.6 billion annually for a long time i think um from 2007 to 2012 which was a huge hit to their budget but as of 2012 i think they were like forget this um you know, it's too much. It's too onerous to keep up the services. So th the reality is we're asking the, the Postal Service to behave like other governments and pre-fund, but then the liability that we're calculating for them is is kind of unfair vis-a-vis -vis the other government agencies. Yeah, it seems a little punitive. Um, yeah. That's like yeah. they're doing the right thing the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's both camps. This is why it becomes an FNON topic, right? Because both camps kind of can make a, a credible case that like their argument is sound. It's just you need, I think we need to have all the details to kind of get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And the details will come out as F reveals them from their perch inside of deep inside of the federal government. Yeah. <laughs> I've decided to put a giant F on my back windshield. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm totally putting a bumper sticker in the, in the free money uh, atelier. Uh, yeah, well, you got to add that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the, the last question for this week is, it's been a year since that famous slash infamous business roundtable statement about the purpose of a corporation, where they said it was, you know, more than to, you know, make money for shareholders, it was to make money for all of its stakeholders. So suppliers, employees, the public at large. Is there a meaningful difference between, you know, the way that corporations are now practicing social responsibility? And like, you know, what would be corporate actual responsibility where they really kind of grow up and serve the, you know, the public at large. I, I, I wish we could have tested it in a different year, you know, like, mm. you know, as like an academic, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, it would have been neat to see if it in kind of a, you know, what we'd say ceteris paribus in academic terms, but like holding all other things constant, you know, we get that announcement and then time goes by and then we can see like, Oh yeah, companies are taking, but like we've had 2020, you know, <laughs> like nothing holds in, in 2020, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. black lives matter, you know, like pandemic forest fires, COVID. like PPP. Yeah. The rap. Yeah, so like, yeah, I'm seeing companies come out and talk about, 
Black Lives Matter in ways that are profoundly cool. Like you log into yeah. Amazon and it's like the first page and it's like, but like, it's because it's 2020. It's not because, you know, the business roundtable got together and said, we need to treat stakeholders correctly. Um, I do see this like generation of companies here, especially in Silicon Valley, where like there are all these founders that want, or you know, it's like when Google got public and they're like, don't be evil. Like, yeah. like you do see a lot of that nowadays where like a lot of these young founders, they've come up, they have kind of a different corporate governance structure because many of them have like these super shares. And they, I think they want to be more stakeholder conscious. And yeah. so, you know, th- this will be really interesting with like this long-term stock exchange, with, which, you know, was approved by the SEC and like full disclosure, I'm an advisor there, but it'll be interesting to see like what companies choose um, that as a venue because that exchange, which has listing requirements, demands that companies adopt five principles, which are all about improving, you know, relationships with the earth, with stakeholders, you know, all those things, right? Um, long term is just a uh, is just a proxy for all these different things that are important. Yeah, that the business you know the business roundtable are talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so funny to think about what it would be like if they made that declaration in 2015, uh, <laughs> and yeah. like how I mean, you know, it's I, I think like the only company that I'm sure would have done exactly the same thing is like Ben and Jerry's, which Darren, who we had on the podcast, is on the board of. You know, yeah. they're just like racism sucks. We're against it. We'll we'll knife anybody <laughs> who's a <laughs> exactly yeah. Like they knew Black Lives Matter a while ago, and. Yeah. And this kind of goes like to some of the stuff we were saying at the beginning of the show, which is like, you need crises to drive innovation. And, yeah. and like where you find the crisis um, kind of doesn't matter. So long as you find some good crises to latch onto, to unlock resources, to shake people up out of the status quo. And, and so hopefully what, what, 22, what 2020 will reveal to people is they have to engage with their stakeholders. They have to make sure they have healthcare. They, you know, all these different things that we want from companies. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we look back at 2020 and we're like, thank goodness that year sucked so bad because it, it drove all this important change. That's, I, I think we got to leave it with that. I mean, and we got to start saying like selling like eat, pray, love style, find your crisis uh, stuff. Totally. You know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. That's something Ephanon can release. Oh, yes. Find your crisis. Oh, man. These crises were manufactured to change capitalism. I think that the Ephanon mythology is starting to make a lot of sense, you know? (laughs) Ephanon is just made up of, like, you know, concerned citizens like you and me. Yeah. (laughs) I hear hear they like us. I hear Ephanon likes us. <laughs> all right. uh, well, yeah, <laughs> listeners and the Ephanon faithful, we love you all. <laughs> we do love this you. Week. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. Let me get rain on them.